Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Give ear to the word of God today. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The same as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, I don't know if you were paying attention to the news this past week, but uh, in, in a timely thing for uh, to have happen as we're going to a text such as this, uh, our U.S. Supreme Court this past uh, Thursday, I believe it was, ruled in favor of a former U.S. postal worker who had been denied uh, the request to have Sundays off in order to observe the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. This ruling, I think, is a great victory for the rights and religious liberties of uh, Christians everywhere throughout our country, and I think it's something to be thankful for. Now, the, the fourth commandment uh, regarding the Sabbath is probably uh, arguably the most misunderstood and neglected of the Ten Commandments. You know, we don't, uh, many times evangelical Christians in our day, don't give much thought or attention to the commandments as it is, but of the ten, the one that is the most neglected is easily, I believe, the fourth commandment. It is easily, uh, just doesn't take much to verify this, uh, it is easily the most carelessly and commonly transgressed of the ten, and that even by professing Christians. And uh, for some of us who are old enough to remember uh, it must be said, this, this has not always been the case. Uh, I guess the older I get, the older I get. But I remember as a kid, as a young, as a young boy in my home back in Pennsylvania, many, many things were closed. In fact, I'll say this, most things were closed. There must, I believe in my little hometown, we had one gas station open just in case. Some of the restaurants were open. The stores were closed. The mall was closed. Uh, you, and, and, we all lived. We, we somehow managed to live through that trial of not being able to go to the mall or have the conveniences that we might think of now by everything being open. Uh, so it's not, it's not ancient history that these things used to be observed in a more public fashion. It's not that long ago, speaking of the post office, it's not that long ago the U.S. Postal Service was basically closed on Sundays and that their employees wouldn't have had to ask for Sundays off because they weren't delivering packages on Sundays to begin with. Uh, it may seem like ancient history to some, but it's, it's again, it's not that long ago when everything was, was basically closed. Uh, it used to be the case that you might be surprised back in the day to see certain businesses actually open on a Sunday. Now, sad to say, I think we're much more likely to be surprised to see one closed. You know, it's like it's like all the restaurants, everybody thinks, oh, I can't go to Chick-fil-A on Sundays. It's like the one place I can think of that that is closed. And God bless them for that, uh, that, that stand that in many ways people might think that's costing them money. I think they're doing quite well. And God is blessing their effort in that. If you're judging by the lines you see in their drive throughs uh, what does the book of Isaiah say? God honors him who honors God. And I think that that is what we're seeing in that regard. Um, it's not that long ago in our nation's history when Sundays were understood 
as being set aside for worship. They were set aside uh, for worship when churches commonly held both morning and evening services, and both those services were well attended. Youth sports were not held on Sundays. You know, it's, it feels like every other Sunday I pull into the parking lot and there's a thousand cars on the side of the street packing that softball field and the adjacent parking lots. And I know that we're a small church and we're self-conscious of it, but, you know, to see even on a, on a busy day like this, if I go out to the parking lot and say, wow, we've got a lot of cars here today. But if you looked across the street on any given Sunday when they're playing their softball games and whatnot, uh, the, the crowd pales in comparison to what we see over there. But, but youth sports weren't, weren't held on Sundays back in the day. Parents, many of whom were Christians, would not have permitted it, right. would not have stood for it. Now we just casually give in to whatever uh, the world wants us to do. Somewhere along the line, all these things changed, and I dare say we are all the worse for it. Our country is all the worse for it in many ways. Now, this morning on a topic such as this, uh, I have to say at the beginning here, I can't say in one sermon everything that needs to be said. I cannot anticipate and answer every possible objection in one sermon. And so rather than, than testing your patience and your ability to stay awake for a long period of time, uh, we will look at this commandment, Lord willing, on a future Sunday, probably on the next Communion Sunday, but at least to get us started from this text, I'd like us to look at at least three things from our text today. The first of those is recovering the Sabbath day. And I would say it doesn't take much to say that we need to do that, that it is in disrepair and disuse and neglect. We need to recover the Christian Sabbath. Secondly, we need to, as the text says in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. That's the first thing we need to do in order to recover is to remember it. And then thirdly, at least we'll we'll begin to to broach this subject. So recovering the Sabbath, remembering the Sabbath, and and finally, the main thing really, sanctifying the Sabbath day. So the first thing to look at this morning, at least briefly, is recovering the Sabbath day, both, both the doctrine of it as well as the practice of it. In fact, if you recover the former and not the latter, there's not really much point. Thinking about it is one thing. It's putting into practice that we need to do. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and wondering to yourself, what's the big deal? Why does it matter that things have changed? You just sound like an old, grumpy old man. And, and things back when I was your age, we didn't do such and such. Uh, you know, maybe you're saying to yourself, why does the Sabbath day even need to be recovered in the first place? Why should the fourth commandment matter so much to us today? as it doesn't seem to do it for, for many. There are many reasons that we could give as to why the Sabbath commandment should be near and dear to the hearts of every professing believer in Christ. There are any number of things that we could say and argue as incentives for us to want to recover uh, the right doctrine and practice of the Sabbath. Uh, there are many things that we could say. One, it's meant for our good. Right? What does it say at the end of the passage? God, what did, what did the Lord do? He blessed the Sabbath day, that's, a, that's what they call a hint. He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. It's meant for our good. It is given as a blessing, as I just said. It's not given to be, to be a burden for us. It is also a testimony of our faith before a watching world, before unbelievers all around of us. It's, it shows them that, that our God is the one true living God who is the God and the ruler of even our time. 
He's not, he's not just the ruler of our inner emotional experiences and affections. It's not just about having warm, fuzzy feelings about God. It actually affects how we live. And in, in precious too few cases, um, that seems to be evident in many Christians' lives. It's like we, we think as long as we think the right thoughts. I remember during the COVID uh, lockdown thing, a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, I was shocked to see them arguing about the churches should remain closed on this basis. Well, you know, you can still have, this isn't the exact wording they would use, but, you know, just you and Jesus at home by yourself, right? It reminds me of a t-shirt I saw uh, where it said, what, is, what does it say? Um, Introverts of the world unite all together in your own places, you know? It's like you can stay at home by yourself and have happy thoughts about Jesus, and that's the protection that's offered in the First Amendment of our Constitution. And so you're, they were saying your rights aren't being trampled on by being required to close the church as long as you can have your own fuzzy feelings about Jesus somewhere in your own house and keep it to yourself. Thank you very much. As if, if, it, if it affects how you live, your daily life, it affects how what you do on any given day, that's a bridge too far for, for many people. Even Christians argued like that. I couldn't believe my, my eyes and ears when I saw such a thing. But observing the Sabbath is a testimony. It shows that, that there are things more important in this life than, than the things the world holds dear, even our work and our recreation. But perhaps the place to start with this, and you know, if you're sitting here wondering why, why do we have to talk about this, it's uncomfortable, perhaps the place for us to start is with the simple fact that it is a commandment of God. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's included in the Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? If you know your shorter catechism, even if you don't know it, it is a summary. The Ten Commandments are a summary, brief summary, of the moral will of God for your life. You know, one of the things, especially for young Christians, what do we all want to know, especially if you're you know, a, young, a young man or a young woman in the faith, you say, I want to know God's will for my life. I remember going to like Bible studies and conferences and things, and the topics were how to know God's will, and it was always these are important things, right? Where, what should I do? Who should I marry? You know, blah blah blah. All these things that are very important. They're not small things, and I don't mean to, to you know make them seem like light and unimportant things. But it's it's kind of a, a strange thing. Is if you want to know God's will for your life, where should you start? Well, Bible, right? I would say, if you want to know the main things that are God's will for your life, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7, is, is the first place to start. All those other things, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity to them. But if you're following God's revealed will, a lot of those other things take care of themselves, don't they? And so when we neglect God's law, it's, it's no, no question, it's no mystery why we have difficulty discerning God's will in other things. But, you know, God, God gives light. You know, where we follow what was given, God very often is pleased to guide us even further along those other things that we happen to be looking for at the time. So the Ten, Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral will. You know, uh, I often say this. Uh, it's one of the things I like about the first Sunday of the month. It's not just having the Lord's Supper. But in our services, typically, we include either the Apostles or Nicene Creed. But the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of our faith, we read the Ten Commandments, which are, is our summary of God's moral will. And we pray together, as Rob just led us in a few moments ago, the Lord's Prayer as well. Doesn't 
which is a summary, a brief, a, a brief pattern prayer and summary of how to pray. And so it's not an accident that many of the Reformed, uh, the Protestant confessions of faith and catechism, what they focused on were those three things. The basic ABCs and building blocks of the Christian faith and life, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Well, the, the, the Sabbath commandment is clearly part of God's moral will uh, for our lives. It's in, not to be crass, but it's in God's top ten. And God has nowhere removed this commandment from, from the ten. It is found, the fact that it's found in Exodus 20 shows that the Sabbath commandment is not, although some argue it is, but they're wrong, it is not part of the ceremonial law. There are aspects of the ceremonial law which God has abrogated at the coming of Christ, right? Such as the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all these things that, that have passed away with the coming of Christ. There were Sabbaths such as the Sabbaths of the land. Remember, if you, were, if you were tilling the land and planting and reaping and all these things, every seventh year, this part of the land had to be left to rest. You know, those things are no longer uh, applying. But the, tenth, the fourth commandment is not abrogated. It is part of God's moral will for our life. The, and the moral law of God does not change. The day has changed. But the substance of the command, God setting aside one day in seven, has nowhere been abrogated. You know, the Pharisees, when you read the Gospels, uh, they often used the Sabbath in improper ways. They were legalistic about it in such a way as they would prevent Jesus from healing someone on the Sabbath. In fact, they plotted to kill him. You could say they plotted to kill him in some ways because of his practice on the Sabbath and his view and his teachings on the Sabbath. But you know what Jesus never said? Oh, that's an Old Testament thing. We don't do that anymore. No, he said, the Son of Man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's claiming divinity. He's saying, oh, you want to follow the Sabbath? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? That's my day. <laughs> don't tell me about the Sabbath. Let me tell you about the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Which one of you, if an ox falls in the ditch, it's your animal, which one of you wouldn't pull it out? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. They all would have. But they, they plotted to put Jesus to death because he healed people on the Sabbath. It's, it's always been right to do good on the Sabbath. The, the day has changed, but the substance has not. Benjamin Warfield uh, puts it this way. After all is said, there is no greater word than ought. No greater word than ought. And there is no higher reason for keeping the Sabbath then that I ought to keep it, that I owe it to God the Lord to keep it in accordance with his command. In other words, there's an obligation. We don't like that word. We don't, in our day, we, we, we bristle at the idea of duty or, or ought or commandment or obligation. We think that sounds very legalistic. And yet, that's what a command is. And God's law, as he says in the Old and New Testament both, it's for our good always. God doesn't command things just to ruin your day. But at the end of the day, it's a commandment. That's the place where we need to start. I believe once we get that straight, many of the other questions and concerns that we might have about what do we do on, on the Lord's Day, I think those questions start to take care of themselves and be answered in and of themselves. Do we think, that the Christ, do we think of the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, do we think of it in moral categories, in ethical categories, right and wrong, should and shouldn't. That's where we have to start. 
because it's included in God's moral will. Do we sincerely see the breaking of this commandment, the Sabbath commandment, as offensive in God's sight? And of keeping it, however, imperfectly, and none of us keep it perfectly, do we think of keeping it as pleasing in the sight of God? We should. His commandment shows us that in many ways. Do we believe the testimony of Scripture that profaning of God's day is a sin that is even worthy of hell and condemnation? Remember the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Or I fall into King James language, right? And what does it say at the end of that commandment? For the Lord will not hold him what? Guiltless. Who takes his name in vain? Like, we don't think of that as, I think, we're wrong if we don't think about that. We don't think about that as a big sin at all. We think, oh, adultery and murder. Those are big sins. But what's the first four commandments? They're all about our relationship with God. They're all about worship. God puts those first. And if you don't get the first four right, you're not getting the last six right either. They, 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 go, they flow one to the next with good reason. And there's a reason that loving God comes first. The first four commandments are a summary of what it looks like and what it means to love God. And God even says that in the commandments, doesn't he? When he talks about those who love me and keep my commandments, those things go together. Love, love and, and keeping God's commandments are not enemies. Uh, in fact, there's nothing legalistic about it if we love God. Th Thomas Boston, the great Puritan writer, says this, Oh, let us de be deeply humbled before the Lord under the sense of our profanations of the Sabbath. For who can plead innocent here? Only a Pharisee can possibly try to say they've kept it completely. I'll say this. Very often we argue against this command in some ways because it's too hard. That shows that we don't get the other commandments either. There's not a single one of the Ten Commandments that anyone in this room, the greatest, most sanctified saint among us, can possibly claim to have kept all, in all things perfectly. The same, the same difficulty applies to the rest of the commandments, right? Adultery. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7? What does Jesus say about adultery? It's easy to say, well, I've never done that, right? But Jesus says, if you've lusted, guess what you've done? You've committed adultery. Same, same principles hold true with the Sabbath. But he says, who can plead innocent here? We are all guilty in some shape or other and have need to flee to the atoning blood of Jesus for the expiation or removal of this and all, our, all of our other sins. None of us can plead innocent with regard to this or any of the commandments. The Sabbath commandment is in many ways, admittedly, in our day, a difficult commandment. It is one that does not come naturally to many of us for a number of reasons. It's probably the one commandment of the ten that in some ways makes some of us the most uncomfortable. It goes against our grain, as we are no longer used to it. But why? Again, you could probably think of a number of reasons. Maybe you're thinking of reasons as I'm saying this. Well, I know why, you know, uh, this, this and that and the other thing. Sometimes it's simple ignorance. We've never, I've never heard this before. I'll ask this, don't raise your hands. We're Presbyterians, we don't do that, right? We don't, we don't yell amens and raise hands. We're, we're the frozen chosen. Um, when is the last time that you heard a sermon on any of the commandments, much less the fourth one? It doesn't happen very often. 
it's, I think it's one of the reasons some, some pastors don't preach through books, because they'll get to uncomfortable places, so they jump around and pick different things at random and avoid the topics that make some folks uncomfortable. That's a bad idea. All of God's word is given there for our, for our good. So it could be ignorance. It could be that the law of God is not being taught in our churches. That absolutely is one of the causes of this. Even in Reformed churches, we, we seem to avoid God's law being taught in any real uh, strong way. Some of us, many of us in our day, have not been raised in a home by a family that sets an example of a, of a right observance of the Lord's Day. You know, we, in other words, we never learned the habit to begin with, and so it's, it's a hard road to hoe to kind of suddenly reverse course, and yet reverse course I think many of us need to do. Sometimes it's just simple worldliness, being conformed to the world around us, because there is a pressure to conform. If you haven't felt that, if you've tried to observe the Sabbath around other folks, maybe you've found that to be the case. It's like, you know, I'm just trying to do God's will here, and people, some, they get uncomfortable around it. They take it personal in some ways, as if you're claiming, you know, to be better than someone else or any, any weird such thing as that. Um, what is the answer to these things? There's many things you could say, but the one that comes to my mind is Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Paul says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, uh, uh, just a, a quick note. Romans 12 is kind of the turning point of the whole book. If I can give you a, a, a quick survey of Romans without going into detail. The first 11 chapters of Romans, in some way, shape, or form, is Paul's explanation and teaching about the gospel of our salvation. Starting from our sin in Romans 1 through 3, the need for salvation, talks about justification, Romans 4, Romans 5, sanctification, <laughs> Romans 6, the limits of sanctification, Romans 7, in other words, we still struggle with sin in this life. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Romans 8, he reminds you that despite that struggle with sin, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 9 through 11, he kind of gives a, a defense of, of God's gospel being a sure thing by saying, because people would say, what about Israel? <laughs> you know, if God's promises don't fail, what about Israel? That whole section on election in Romans 9 is a part of that argument. Paul is, is defending the truth of the gospel. But in Romans 12, something changes. And what does Paul do there? Paul spends 11 chapters saying, here's the gospel of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's what God has done in his great love and in power to save you by sending his son, by drawing you to repentance and faith, giving you new life in him. Then in chapter 12 through chapter 16, the end of the book, he goes, basically, therefore, live differently. Because God has saved you, here's how you are to live. That's where he starts here in our passage. Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore points back to what he just said. By the mercies of God, so the first 11 chapters are about the mercies of God in Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies, not just your inner emotional thoughts and affections and fuzzy feelings, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here it is, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed, changed, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I won't preach a sermon within a sermon on that text, but what does that mean? It means on our own, naturally, 
left to ourselves, even after coming to Christ for salvation, we don't just naturally know everything we're supposed to know. We don't think the way we should think about all kinds of things. And that even the most sanctified saint in this room, you need your mind renewed more. You know the old saying, don't believe everything you hear? I always say kind of jokingly, but it's true. Don't believe everything you think. We don't just naturally fall out of bed knowing all the right things. We all need our minds renewed, don't we? And I think we need our minds renewed on this particular topic perhaps more than many other things. Because we've just kind of fallen into the practice of, of the world around us that we don't see a need to do it. But the solution to our being conformed to the world in this and many other things is the renewal of our minds. That is what God uses by his grace and his spirit to transform our lives by, by his grace. The Sabbath commandment, I believe, is something in our day that we very much need to have our thinking, our minds, renewed about. According to, you know, as, as a believer, and I don't know everybody in this room, but I, I sort of take for granted, I hope that, that all of you, I hope, are believers in Jesus Christ, that you know the salvation that comes by faith in him, uh, even, even today. But it, it should not surprise you. I hope it doesn't surprise you that every once in a while, in a sermon or in your own reading of the scripture, you come across something where you're like, oh, I never thought of that before. I, I, never, I never would have dreamed of that. Oh, I'm, I'm doing this, something this way. And the scripture actually tells me I should be doing something else or doing something in a different way, or I should think a different way about a certain thing. If that never happens, there's something wrong. If, you, if that never happens in your own Bible reading or in, or in listening to sermons, either I'm not doing my job or, or you're not doing your job as you listen, or both. Right? God's word is meant to renew our minds and change our lives. And so what we need to do among about this and other things, we need to, what does Paul say there? Learn to discern what is the will of God. We naturally don't just know it, even as Christians. We need to discern it so that we'll learn that even the Sabbath command, among other things, is, what does Paul say? Good and acceptable and perfect. Not just good for God. God doesn't need anything from us. Good for you. Good for me. You know, it's, it's one of the things that God is always seeming to say in the Old Testament, especially when he gives his law. He says things like in Deuteronomy, these things are what? For your good always. Sin in every way. Sin, which seems good at the time, leads to misery. Sin is never for your good always. It might have the, you know, the Bible talks about the pleasures of sin for a season, right? For a short time. Otherwise, nobody would do them, right? But God's will is not for your harm. God's will is for your good and for your blessing. And so following God's law is not some, it's not supposed to be a burden strapped to your back. It's not meant to weigh you down and ruin your fun and ruin your day. It's meant to be something where it's for your good. And we may not see that good right away. But if we, if we come to discern God's will, we'll see that it really is good and acceptable and perfect. And if we would discern God's will in these things, I think that would go a long way in our recovery of the right doctrine and practice of the Sabbath day. Well, the second thing is uh, that we need to consider from our text is remembering the Sabbath day. It's both, I think, sad and quite a bit ironic that the commandment that begins by telling us to remember is the one that seems to be so quickly forgotten and put out of mind, isn't it? 
Thomas Watson, the great Puritan writer, my favorite Puritan, writes this. This word remember shows that we are apt to forget Sabbath holiness. Therefore, we need a memorandum or a reminder to put us in mind of sanctifying the day. The fact that God says, you know, uh, when I was in the Navy back in the day, a long time ago now, we used to have a saying. I don't know who came up with it, but we, they said, the rules are written in blood. And I worked, this may be hard for you to believe, I worked in an electronic shop uh, on, on the aircraft carrier that I was, that I was stationed on. Uh, and we would have these safety bulletins and safety training things would happen. And I was the safety officer for my shop. I, I pulled the, the short straw. And so I would be, you know, I would try to give the, the safety lecture, and we'd read the bulletin that comes out, and it tells us, okay, from now on we're going to do something this way. And some of them you'd read, and you'd almost fall off your chair laughing, like, who'd be dumb enough to do something like that? And the, 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 the problem is, someone, the reason you're reading that safety bulletin is because someone was dumb enough to do that, and they might have died. You know, there used to be this practice when we'd work on, on high-powered electronics. Uh, somewhere along the way, somebody realized, you know, if you don't put a tag on that so people don't just walk up and turn the power back on, something bad could happen. And so this is one of the things that they, somewhere along the line, they figured out to do that. But these safety meetings, that's what they did. They said, well, the rules are written in blood. If you're reading it, no matter how dumb it is, it means someone probably, probably did that. Uh, and I think... In a way, the fact that God has to say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, what does it tell you? We're dumb enough to forget. God, God, you know, God doesn't waste words in the Bible. If you were in high school or college and you'd write papers, uh, you know, if you had, a, had to write a paper with 10 pages, uh, 15, when you get to seminary, it's 15, right, or, or more. In seminary, they tell you not to write so much, right, Jonathan? Like, make it shorter. I didn't have that problem. But, you know, God, God didn't write his word and go, well, I need to add a few more things to it. When he says remember, it's because he knows we are apt to forget, as Watson, as Watson said. And so recovering a right biblical view and practice of the, of the Sabbath day begins with remembering it. And what does that mean? Do we actually forget the commandments literally? Is that what God is saying? You know, did you wake up one day and be like, oh, I thought there was nine Oh, what was that one? Oh, I forgot all about that one. What the, you know, no. It means to keep it in mind, to be mindful of it, to be aware of it during, during the week and keep it in mind. May God in his mercy use our time in the Word today to help us to be mindful of it just that way. But again, what does it say? It says, remember, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, you could say that in this commandment based on verse 8, that this, uh, there are two main things involved. And they both are really the first is remembering the day. The second is after that, sanctifying the day. We're going to look at Lord willing in a moment. Uh, so remembering the day and sanctifying it or keeping it holy. Why do we need to remember the Sabbath day? Besides the fact that we are apt, as Watson says, to to forget it. What, what, you know, God could have said this, and he didn't. God could have said in verse 8, just keep the Sabbath day holy. He didn't. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, showing that that is something we need to do if we're going to try to keep the day holy at all. Now, now remembering in this sense doesn't, again, doesn't just mean literally remembering it and not forgetting it. it. It's not just about remembering what day of the week it happens to be, and then it's Sunday. It's, he's telling us to be mindful of it. What does it look like 
for us to be mindful of the Sabbath day in order to keep it holy. What does that look like? The first thing I think it means in some ways is that we are as believers to in some ways structure our week around the Lord's day. At least in our minds, if not on our calendars, structure our very week around the Lord's day. Many times we fail to keep the the Sabbath holy because we fail to be mindful of it beforehand and plan ahead for it in some ways in what we do during the week. Do you unnecessarily stay out too late on Saturday night so that your attendance upon the ordinances of God in public worship are affected in some way, even preventing you from, from attending? Do you stay up too late the night before so that you're too tired or too sleepy to attend worship entirely, or so that even if you attend, you're too sleepy? You're not really attending on, on these things. You know, think about this. Would you or I do such a thing if we knew that we had to be up early and meet with a president or meet with a king or perhaps some famous celebrity or other person like that that we look up to? I I dare say most of us wouldn't. We'd have that date on our calendar circled in red ink or yellow highlighter or both or something. There'd be a big star on the calendar there. And we'd say, next week I am meeting with I won't say a president's name in case you don't like that president. But pick, pick someone you look up to that's famous or, or in, in high position of authority. Do we think less of God than we do of them? Do we come carelessly into God's presence in worship? Do we treat the worship of God in that kind of a way that we would never think to do with some other human public figure? Do we prepare for worship? Do we, you know, prayerfully look over the sermon passage if we know what it is beforehand? Do we examine ourselves as we're going to have today the Lord's Supper? Do we examine ourselves before taking the Lord's Supper? If, if we don't, is it any wonder that at times we receive so little blessing from God upon these things if we're so careless about them and not sanctifying his day? Thomas Boston again knows that we must remember the Sabbath. Interestingly, he says, before during and even after it. That's a lot of mindfulness. That's a lot of remembering. He says, remember it when it's over to see what good you have got by it, to bless him, that's bless God, for any of the smiles of his face or manifestations of his grace and to mourn over our failures and apply the blood of Christ for pardon and cleansing. How great is our need to remember the Christian Sabbath day that we might keep it holy and set apart uh, to God for our, for, his, for our good and for his glory. Well, last but not least, and there's far more than we can say on this topic, but the last thing, to maybe the main thing for us to consider, or at least to begin considering this morning, is what it means to sanctify the Sabbath day or keep it holy. That's what keep it holy means, to sanctify it. That's really what God is saying there. <laughs> now, it must be said up front here, there's, there's a lot of things that could be said that I could say this morning, there's a lot of things that I <coughs> should say uh, in regard to this, but we can't cover all that ground in one one morning sermon. Uh, but let's treat this at least as a brief introduction to the subject, and Lord willing, we'll pick it up again on a future Sunday. What does it mean to, to sanctify or, or keep holy the Sabbath day? Well, in some ways, you could say that verses 9 through 11 is an explanation of what that means. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 9 through 11, here's what it looks like especially regarding 
our work. So verses 9 through 11 describes for us what it means to sanctify the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But first and foremost, what it means to sanctify something is to set it apart unto God. It means to set it apart and to not treat it like any other day. In fact, verses 8 through 11, which is our text, you might notice that verses 8 to 11 both begin and end with references to sanctifying the day. Right? We are told in verse 8 to, to keep the day holy or to sanctify it. And what does God say in verse 11? What is the reason? One of the reasons God gives us for sanctifying the day is because that's what he's done. The word for means like because. He says, for the, you know, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's part of God's motivation to us for keeping it holy. Do we treat Sundays just like any other day of the week? Other than a couple hours in the morning during the worship service when we attend public worship. Or are we sincerely trying to set apart the day unto God? Much of verses 9 through 11 talks about our labor or our work and how we're not to use the Sabbath day for that purpose. Look there at verses 9 through 11 again. It says, God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do, what does it say? Any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. They're not coming to church last I checked, right? But God wants even them to have rest. Or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. They might not even believe in the Lord. And, and God is saying, you're responsible for them. They're under your roof or inside your, your gate. And then he gives us in verse 11 the reason, the why of the commandment, right? He says, Why? For, or because, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. People, you know, we have these arguments among theologians and seminary students and, and whatnot. We say, we argue about the days of creation. Um, I, I will admit to you easily that I am a caveman. In this regard, I believe in a sixth literal day creation with no apologies for it. Um, but, you know, we, we sometimes people argue about it. And I've always said, well, Exodus 20 to me ends the discussion. Because there's no argument that's poetic at all, as some try to do with the, with the Genesis text. It says, for in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. And they'll say, well, God didn't need to do that. Well, of course he didn't. Why did God create in six days? There may be other reasons, but what's the reason the scripture tells us? Why did God take six days to create everything and rest on the seventh day? Was God tired? Does God ever get tired? Was he up in heaven? Oh, boy, that, that last day was a real, real zinger. You know, making those people, that really wiped me out. No, he did it to set a pattern for us. He did it to set a pattern for us, like a parent does. Do this. Sometimes we do it, you know, we often do things, we're showing our kids how to do something much more slowly than we would do on our own. I could, I could do it much more quickly if I would just do it. No, he slows it down. God could have just spoken the whole thing into existence in one millisecond. Of course, there was no such thing as a millisecond until he made it. Right, But he did this to set a pattern for us. He tells us right in the commandment. For, because of this, on account of this, here's how I did it so that you do the same 
thing. Therefore, the Lord blessed them. Notice it also says, look at the way it describes the Sabbath day. When it says, it is a, verse 9, it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. What's the little preposition to? T-O. He's saying it belongs to God, it's his. God is saying it's my day. It's, he's not just saying it's a day of rest for you, which it is. He says it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's his, it's his day. This is the prophet Malachi. We looked at that book, I remember, uh, probably over a year ago now. Remember Malachi, the, the, the chapter every, every pastor likes to talk about when it comes to tithing, right? Remember Malachi talked about tithing and said that the people were robbing God because they didn't tithe? That should get your attention. Robbing God, right? You can rob God by withholding your tithes, Malachi 3.8. But essentially, we by not sanctifying the Sabbath, we rob God of his day. And, you know, I'm, I'm not good at math, but a tithe is a tenth. It's literally a tenth. Uh, that's what the word means. God asks for a tenth of our income that he's provided for us in the first place, right? He asks for a seventh of our time. And you could say, which one's more? No, they're both important. But judging by the percentage, if you like math, which one seems to be more important? Our time. You know, in Second Corinthians, when Paul talks about the, the church setting aside their tithes and, and their giving for those in Jerusalem and all these things who were having a, a difficult time with famine, uh, he mentions, and this isn't a direct quote, but he mentions that they had given themselves themselves to God first, and as a result of that, they gave what they gave. Well, part of that's our time, which is as important, if not more important to God, than our money. So are we robbing God of his day by profaning the Lord's day, by treating it as any other day of the week, either for work or for recreation that's not involved in worship. You know, God, he tells us he's given us ample time. He's given us six days. I mean, most of us do five, right? He's given us six days. You know, some people actually argue this is a command, that you're supposed to work six days. And I'm not going to say it is or isn't, uh, but it certainly doesn't require a five-day work week. He says, six days, you shall labor and do all your work. In other words, I'm paraphrasing. He's saying, I've given you plenty of time to get your stuff done. To get your work done. Do it on Saturday if you have to. Don't do it on, on the Lord's day. He's given us enough time for our labor, for our worldly employments and recreations. And he commands us to rest from those things one day in the week. And why is that? What's the purpose of the day? It's not just idleness. God isn't like, you know, as a kid. That's the, it's the hardest when you're a kid because you can't sit still, right? God isn't just saying, sit still and hold your breath. For the day, you know, try not to do anything for the day. The point is spending time with God. And if there isn't a day set aside to do that, we won't be able to do it. Not publicly and as a church, without a day being set aside for it. The point is spending time with God and his people as the church. But that takes faith, doesn't it? It takes faith to do that. Like every, remember the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so It takes faith to keep the Sabbath holy. After all, what's the saying if you're, if you're in business? Time is what? Money, right? Time is money. It takes faith, just like it takes faith to tithe. It takes faith to sanctify the Lord's day and keep it holy. It takes faith to refrain from unnecessary labor on that day, 
faith that God will provide for us. That's easier said than done many times. That God will provide for you and your family. You know, I, I'll let you read this one. This will be your homework. Read Exodus 16, you know, a few chapters or so before our sermon text, where God first gave them manna. He literally tells them, remember, remember, the, remember the commandment, how it dealt with the Sabbath? Before he even got the commandment, God's like, I'm going to send manna, and you can take this much and use it, and don't try to save it. It'll, it'll rot, it'll stink if you try to save, save extra for the next day. But there was one day of the week where, there was a, where they could collect a double portion. What day was that? Saturday. Well, Friday in this case, right? The yeah. Sabbath back then was Saturday. But the day before the Sabbath, that was the one day you could, you could take double what you normally would, and it wouldn't rot. And he said he did that to test them. And guess what they did at first? They went out on the Sabbath to try to collect some anyway, and God was not happy about it. He told them, I'm going to provide this way. Even their provision of their daily bread, which is what the manna was, we prayed for that in the Lord's Prayer, God had so organized it in such a way that even their food was taken care of for them the day before, so that nothing, not even their daily necessities, should come between them and spending time in the worship of God with God's people. It was a test. In many ways, it tests us in our faith today in similar ways. Do we trust God that he knows what's best for us? Do we trust God to provide for us and for our families? And here's, here's a question. Are we diligently laboring those six days to do that? Are we working hard enough on days one through six, or I should say two through seven now, right? The other six days to provide for us and our families that we can set aside the Sabbath, the Lord's Day on Sundays for worship with God's people. Or do we work in such a way to necessitate that we have to work or we think we have to work extra on God's Sabbath? By sanctifying the Sabbath in this way from worldly labor as well as recreation, we are demonstrating to a watching world that we trust the Lord to take care of us, even our daily needs. And we're also telling them there are many, there are much more important things in this life than money and possessions and even entertainment. And I would say the latter of those two might be the worst of them. Entertainment, if we, we, we say, we sometimes call it amusement. I remember Dr. Boyce years ago defined that word. I'd never heard it before. And he said, this isn't a quote, but he said, do you know what the word amusement means? To muse is to what? Think. You put the letter A before it, it's, we call it the primitive if you're a grammar nerd, right? It, it, it means the lack of something. So if you're an atheist, what do you not believe in? God. Now, you're lying. You know God exists, right? But that's what we call it. Uh, if you are, uh, if somebody that, um, yeah, it, 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 you put that, that letter before it, it's that you say you don't, don't believe in it. But we're saying to people in the world around us that there is a God who takes care of us, that we trust God to take care of our needs, our family. And we're also telling them, oh, sorry, I lost track of my own thought. Amusements or entertainment. See, I'm getting old. What does it mean? It means to not think. And what, what, what does everybody around us try to do right now? Anything to get your minds off of everything. And so we chase around entertainment. I like to be entertained. You like to be entertained, but that's not for Sunday. And I know Rob has said this once in a while that he hopes that in a, in a godly way, Sundays are our entertainment, but not that kind of entertainment, right? That we, we enjoy spending time with God and thinking about him. 
But by sanctifying the Lord's day, we are showing our, our neighbors and families and friends that there are much more important things in this life, even than our daily necessities, even than our entertainments, and that we do believe in the one true and living God. Uh, we show that we have the eyes of faith by this, and we look unto God for the good of our souls and the souls of our loved ones, and that we have our hearts set mainly, not on the things of this life, as important as they may be, but on the things of eternity. And notice how God commands us and instructs us to be mindful of those under our care in this text. Uh, those who are under our care, under our roofs, under our authority, we are not to be content to just observe these things ourselves privately. Here, father and mother are told to keep our sons and daughters, even our servants and our livestock, and even the sojourner among us from laboring on the Sabbath to the best of our ability to do that. Are, are we mindful of these things? Or do we needlessly cause or play some part in the sins of others, causing them in some way to break the Sabbath and causing them to work when they don't have to? Here's, the, here's where I'm going to meddle. Do we patronize restaurants on Sundays? You know, I've, I've seen so many people that are servers uh, on social media, they dread Sundays. They dread it. Because guess what? Not only do we go to restaurants and break the Sabbath and cause them to work, we don't tip. It's like an, adding insult to injury. Don't, don't do that. But, I mean, tip on Saturday. Tip on Friday. Right? I mean, go in. And don't go in on a Sunday. Don't go in on a Sunday. Do we patronize restaurants and cause people to work? I wonder this. How many professing Christians are made to work and miss out on public worship because of this? And I, I hear the arguments. Well, they're going to be open anyway. They're just going to do it anyway, so why don't I just go in? If every professing Christian stopped, what do you think would happen? Their business would go down tremendously, and they might actually consider closing on Sundays. But either way, we shouldn't be adding to it. We shouldn't be adding to it in any way. We should be showing them, even by our lack of patronage on that day, that God's day is not for those things. I can't help but wonder if some restaurants and other businesses might actually close their doors on Sundays if all the professing Christians in a given place just stopped going on Sundays. We'll never know if we don't try. Some work falls under the category, as our confession and catechism say, of works of, of necessity and mercy. Some people have to work, right? Uh, I'll give you a newsflash. Uh, this, this isn't meant to be a humble brag or whatever the kids call it. Um, I work on Sundays. <laughs> a little bit, right? And, and what does Jesus say? The priests desecrate the Sabbath and yet are or profane the Sabbath and yet are blameless. Jesus is saying, I don't know if you notice those guys in the temple, they're sweating. You know, they're, they're working, but it's okay because the command wasn't about inactivity in the first place. <laughs> the whole point of the day was public worship and private worship. Of, of the Lord, right? Uh, think of some kinds of work that can't not be done. Think of law enforcement. I would love if our deputies could have Sundays off, and if our law enforcement and firefighters could take Sundays off, if crime would take a break, if emergencies would take a break, and house fires and whatnot would, would just, you know, if you, if you don't mind, hold off on Sundays, do it on Monday, right? So they, they have to work, and they are not sinning in, in doing so. 
the military, first responders, hospital workers, things, things like that. There are many, many lines of work that you can't not necessarily work. Uh, but I think we need to be careful that we don't stretch that idea beyond the bounds of good common sense and honesty. One of my, uh, one of my favorite movies, I won't talk, go into it, but, uh, but Tombstone, which I just admitted I, I watched, but there's a line there where, where Doc, Doc talks about, about, uh, Wyatt and says, that's what I love about Wyatt. He can talk himself into anything. We talk ourselves into all kinds of things and wrap ourselves around the axle by trying to find loopholes and things around God's will. We shouldn't have any part of doing such a thing. God has set an example for us in the very order of creation. He bids us to follow that example. He rested on the seventh day, verse 11. And so we too are to rest in a holy way on the Christian Sabbath. The day is only changed because of Christ's death and resurrection. And in that resurrection, he ushered in a dawn of a new creation. That's how important Christ's resurrection is, that it, it changed the Sabbath. Didn't get rid of it, but it changed the day of it to be on his the day of his resurrection. God has blessed the Sabbath day and thereby showing us he intends it to be a blessing and not a burden. He intends it to be a blessing and not a burden. What does Jesus say? Uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. This is for I did this for you, he's basically saying. This isn't meant to be some legalistic thing. Uh, Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14 says this, and we'll close with this. Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, look how God talks about the day. My holy day, right? And call the Sabbath a what? And call the Sabbath a delight. Doesn't sound like a burden on your back, does it? If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, it's, it's kind of like what we parents often say to our kids when we're trying to teach them certain things. We say, you're only hurting yourself. You don't know what you're missing out on by neglecting these things. God says, you would ride on the heights of the earth if you just honored my day uh, as holy. May the Lord Jesus be pleased to work in us what's pleasing in his sight by his Holy Spirit that we might by his work in us, incline our hearts to repentance in this where it's needed, and that we might truly learn to call the Sabbath a delight, and so that we learn more and more, as he says, what's the result of that? Call the Sabbath a delight, and we learn to take delight in the Lord. To him be all the glory. Amen.